Hello, everybody. Welcome to this edition of the Asia Ventilation Forum or AVF podcast. This is the ICU Tips and Tricks series. And my name is Jason Poir. Today, we are really glad to have uh, Dr. Anders Perner. Dr. Anders Perner is a senior staff specialist and professor in intensive care at Riggs Hospitalet, University of Copenhagen, and an honorary professor of the George Institute in Sydney. He chairs the Danish National Center for Research in Intensive Care and a Scandinavian Critical Care Trials Group. He was the chair of three landmark trials, the 65, the 6S trial, the TRIS trial, and the classic trial. And the results of these trials have uh, improved the fluid and transfusion therapy for patients with sepsis. And today, Dr. Perner is here to talk to us about how he provides fluid therapy in sepsis. So welcome again, Dr. Perner. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks, Dr. Perner. Maybe I'll just start with a very simple and commonly faced scenario. You have a patient who's uh, presenting to the emergency department with what looks really like sepsis. Uh, he's hypotensive. Mm. And generally, we would first start uh, by, of course, checking the lactate, uh, doing the mm. blood cultures, giving the antibiotics, but we're here to talk about the fluids. And I guess my mm. first question to you is, how would you decide uh, on whether to give fluids for this patient right at the start and how much fluid to give? Yeah, so so that's, uh, I guess, a, a very common scenario uh, all over the world. Um, and, and it's the the uh, at least seen from a a management problem it it's still it's still a a challenge to uh, to clinicians and hospitals uh, systems to to provide the best care for patients with sepsis and and then therefore i guess in, in particular for patients with septic shock the uh, the outcomes are um, are still poor so high mortality rates um, for these patients so so it's it's very important that, that both doctors and hospital systems uh, are uh, prepared to handle these patients. Um, I said for a specific patient, uh, it's uh, a challenge. If you go to the international guidelines or the uh, latest iteration of the surviving sepsis campaign guideline, it's, it's on the other hand quite simple. So if the patient has sepsis associated hypertension, he or she is to receive uh, an initial fluid bolus of 30 ml uh, per kilo. So, so I, I think a fair starting point is to start uh, providing IV fluids. Um, if, the, if there is no uh, concern about potential cerebral pathology, I would start a buffered crystalloid solution. If, if there is concern about potential uh, CNS involvement of some kind, I would give uh, isotonic saline. Uh, so you start out and then try to chase the story for patient history for fluid loss. Uh, in my uh, experience, it's actually quite few patients in particular, those who present in the ED who have lost a considerable amount of IV fluid. If, if they have lost fluid by diarrhea or vomiting, and it's well documented, such a patient is likely to benefit from 
in my opinion, at higher fluid volumes. If there is no documented fluid loss, I would be of more concern. And particularly if, if the patient has pneumonia, so a, a hypoxic respiratory failure, such patients uh, will be more prone to the side effects of fluids, which uh, uh, one of which is uh, uh, pulmonary edema. So in short, start out with IV fluids. For most patients, a buffered crystalloid. For those who may have uh, cerebral pathology, IV saline. If there is a history of fluid loss, this patient may need a higher fluid volume. If there is concern about side effects, that could be uh, pulmonary edema. For patients with pneumonia, these patients sh should likely have a, a bit less. Um, after the initial start, uh, repeated assessment of the changes in the patient's markers for hyperperfusion would, would be, I think, a valuable tool to, again, allocate patients to higher fluid volumes versus lower fluid volumes. Right. Um, higher fluid volumes versus lower fluid volumes. Uh, we, we have all seen the guidelines, uh, 30 mils mm. per kg, as you said, of crystalloids. Mm. Um, mm. And yet, in reality, I, I don't think any of us actually just gives uh, 30 mils of, no. uh, per kg of crystalloids just like that. We would give 500 mils, 1 litre, 1.5, 2. Yeah. And, and you recently led the TASIC trial. Um, mm. Could you summarize the findings for us and, and how yeah. we should uh, move ahead uh, given the findings of your trial? Yeah. So, so the... Um, so the classic uh, trial was a, a, a randomized clinical trial done in, uh, in 30 European ICUs in seven countries. So it's important to stress that this was in, in uh, Northern Europe, ICU setting, uh, and most patients had already received the initial resuscitation. So most patients had received the 30 ml. So, so this is the sort of patient entering into the, what could be called the stabilization phase. So after initial management. Uh, we then randomized patients to fluid restriction. So in essence, that, that was no more IV uh, fluid at all, um, unless um, there were specific indications for it. And, and the specific indications in the protocol was uh, first of all, severe hyperperfusion. So if the patient, in spite of now, the initial resuscitation displayed severe hyperperfusion as either uh, very low blood pressure, so mean at zero pressure below 50, in spite of noradrenaline, uh, modeling beyond the edge of the kneecap, a lactate above four or a low urinary output, uh, but the latter was only for the first two hours because patients with established AKI and no urinary output should not be harmed by repeated uh, fluid bolusing. So, so if patients in the restrictive group displayed one of these markers of severe hyperperfusion, they could have a fluid bolus, 250 to 500 cc, and then be reassessed. The other specific indications for IV fluid in this uh, protocol arm was if if the fluid was lost, so obvious fluid losses, again, bleeding, diarrhea, ascites, uh, then IV fluid could be given. Uh, or if, 
if they were to to uh, or if IV fluid could be given to ensure a total fluid input of one liter per day, but this includes everything, so uh, IV drugs, nutrition, uh, any oral input as well. So so and, and actually this was very few patients who had fluid um, on this indication. So the control group was standard care, so that was the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines to continue IV fluids uh, as long as the circulation uh, improved. We followed the patient to, uh, to 90 days. The protocol was active uh, as long as the patient was in ICU, and that was a medium of uh, five days. Um, and in those in, in, in those uh, five days, the um, um, restrictive group received a median of 1.5 liters, uh, whereas uh, the, the standard group received a bit more than double of that, uh, a bit more than three liters of, um, of IV fluids. Uh, so the important uh, endpoints was mortality at 90 days, uh, severe adverse uh, events at 90 days, and days alive without life support and days alive and out of hospital. And none of these outcomes differed um, between the two groups. So the conclusion uh, of the trial, the firm mythological conclusion was that the IV fluid uh, restriction did not uh, improve mortality or any of the other uh, important um, outcome measures. Obviously, the 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 alternative uh, conclusion is obviously that that, that um, IV fluid restriction was safe. The addition of more fluid to these patients did not uh, improve their outcome. And so, um, given that finding, uh, which direction would you shift towards? Mm. Because, as you said, it's uh, both ways are correct. Yeah, so I think I mean a a, a pragmatic view on this is that we have sort of established a a zone, if you may, a range of IV fluid uh, management strategies that appears to be safe. So within the framework that we worked in a trial, so patients who had received the initial fluid resuscitation, who then in ICU received median between one point five to Three three point five liters of um, of IV fluid, that appears to be a safe zone. So if you if you work within this zone, the the fluid management is uh, it's safe. It's not beneficial to give uh, in the lesser range, or it's not on the uh, on the other way around. It's it's not harmful to give uh, the, at the higher range. If you move beyond this range. There's still uncertainty. So, so based on our data, we, we cannot recommend being even more restrictive, and we cannot recommend being more liberal. So, so, so I, I think a, a, a practical result of our trial is that, that we have sort of established a range within where the fluid volumes um, appears to be safe within this uh, range. Right. Dr. Perner, can I ask, in your opinion, does this um, change, you think, the validity of the uh, 30 mils per kg guideline? Because on the one hand, um, the intervention arm was restrictive, which was compared against the guideline. But on the other hand, as you rightly said, um, 
patients, some of them, most of them had already gotten mm -hmm. a bolus of fluid even before enrollment yeah. into the trial. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it doesn't challenge the, the initial uh, 30 ml uh, per kg. So, so and, and in fact, there, there are the, the results presented of, uh, of five predefined subgroup analysis in, um, in the trial. And, and one of them, one of the subgroup analysis was for patients who had received more or less uh, of the 30 ml. At the time of randomization, um, and actually, those who who had received less than 30 ml, if they were were randomized to restriction, they appeared to to do worse. So 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 I think, and, and this is somewhat speculative because it's based on a subgroup analysis, and, and the results are are not statistically significant. But just looking at the numbers. If you had received less than 30 ml and was randomized to restriction, so you overall received less fluid, you, you may have uh, fared a bit worse. So 90-day mortality was 5% point higher in this group. Um, not statistically significant, but, but still, without any other evidence, this, this is a sort of a signal, a hypothesis that, that our results at least do not support being even more restrictive because the, the subgroup who, who overall in the full uh, course of their, uh, their sepsis was most restrictive actually did worse. Right, got it. Uh, you mentioned just now that one of the indications in a restrictive group uh, to give more fluids is uh, mean arterial pressure of less than 50. Uh, and some of them are even on norepinephrine. Um, mm. So I was just wondering, in your practice, when do you start the norepinephrine as you are giving the boluses, uh, after your boluses, et cetera? Mm. Yeah, so so all, so all so these patients had septic shock based on the new uh, sepsis 3 definition. So all receive vasopressors. So vasopressor plus lactate above two. So, so those are the, uh, the shock criteria. Uh, on which everyone was enrolled. So all, everyone was on a vasopressor. So I started vasopressors for low blood pressure. So, so, so I, I think, at least in my quite simplified approach, and I, I think this has some value. It's, it has value to do the care of these patients as simple as possible because it's, it's complex enough as, as it is. Um, and therefore, if blood pressure is low, I give a intervention that raises blood pressure. And that intervention is noradrenaline. So, so I give noradrenaline for low blood pressure uh, in, in principle without co even considering whether or not they have had um, IV fluid. Because right. I, I'm, right. I, I don't think IV fluid is a good intervention for low blood pressure. It's, it's a good intervention potentially against low cardiac output driven by hypervolemia and therefore markers, other markers of uh, hyperperfusion and particularly modeling uh, potentially raised lactate, um, but, but not hypotension in itself. For that, I give a drug that raises blood pressure and that drug is uh, noradrenaline. Got it. Do you give colloids? Uh, because the surviving sepsis campaign guideline would say that after a decent amount of crystalloids, however mm. you define it, you give mm. some colloids. 
yeah no no i i i as i see the literature there is i mean i mean Ten thousands of patients have been randomized to to albumin uh, versus a crystalloid, and for now there are no conclusive evidence that that albumin is superior um, to crystalloids. It's it's much more expensive, um, and the patients have a capillary escape of albumin anyway. So so what you give as uh, an external source of albumin will be lost to the interstitium, and and I worry about a bit about that. So, so uh, no conclusive evidence that it's beneficial. It's expensive, and it's it will escape the circulation um, anyway. Right. So, so far we have uh, talked about uh, a bolus of fluid uh, in a range of thirty mils per kg, and after that, um, somewhere between one point five to three liters. Uh, and in the restrictive group, we have talked about using markers like lactate. Mottling, extremely low blood pressure, extremely low urine output. Uh, but we haven't talked about the usual markers of fluid responsiveness or preload responsiveness. Mm. Um, when, when do you start using those and uh, how do you do it? Mm. So, so in essence, I, I do not use them, except that, that, that I, well, a way... To, to do it, I guess, is uh, the traditional, the old school way is to give a fluid bolus and then to to reassess the marker that you used to to uh, establish the indication for IV fluid. So so I would see a patient with mottling or cold feet um, and decide to give fluid based on that, and I'll give 500 cc, and then I'll reassess. So that's my assessment of fluid responsiveness. Obviously, I gave fluid to, to assess it. Uh, if the patient does not improve, I'll stop there. If, if there's no improvement in the markers that I found for indicating to give fluids, it does not improve, I stop. If there is improvement in that marker, I'll reconsider again balancing the, uh, the risk benefit for the specific patient. If it's a patient on a ventilator with pneumonia, I will be more restrictive and then maybe stop. If not, uh, I could repeat my um, my fluid bolus. So I, I don't use any of the uh, the methods to to assess fluid responsiveness without giving fluid. So pulse pressure variation or passive leg raising. Um, so these are more complex techniques. They all uh, uh, need advanced, more advanced uh, hemodynamic monitoring, either a PICO system um, or a tool to measure uh, stroke volume. Um, many of the studies uh, done are very physiological, so small group of patients only showing that you can identify fluid responsiveness. It doesn't show the consequences of the patients to have this fluid. So we don't know if it benefits patients to be resuscitated, guided by um, the more advanced markers of, um, of fluid responsiveness. And in and some, some of the techniques like Echocardiography uh, assessed uh, stroke volume. Um, that's actually pretty uh, poorly validated. So I'm uncertain if echocardiography can be used to assess 
changes in stroke volume during passive leg racing because you are to assess quite small changes in stroke volume and and uh, I don't think that the studies assessing this technique have validated that that uh, you can use trans uh, thoracic um, echo to assess the small changes in stroke volume that you're looking for with the use of uh, passive leg racing so why one challenge the methodology of the of the techniques and more importantly the the lack of evidence that these these more advanced more expensive tools highly higher resource use that they will uh, benefit the patient and the healthcare system and and again i think simplification of care has a rationale in itself uh, so i try to do things as simple as possible and if everyone in the team and everyone in the uh, in the hospital does it the same simple way, learn this very well, I, I think this will improve uh, overall care and, it, and it, it, is, it is at least more cost effective than using more advanced methods that have ne- some of them have not been validated and none of them have at least have been shown to, to provide patient benefit um, if used. Right, right. Um, you've also been involved in uh, some de-resuscitation work. Um, mm. When patients are mm. hemodynamically stable, you start to mm. dehydrate or diuresis or dry mm. the patients. Uh, how, mm. how do you do this? So, so I, um, and particularly if the patient is on a ventilator, I'll be very uh, meticulous about uh, restricting all fluids also with um, obviously IV fluids uh, as per the classic protocol, but also all fluids with the medication and, and even with nutrition uh, to avoid fluid overload. Uh, because I think there's a reasonable uh, amount of evidence that that um, overhydration prolongs the time on the ventilator. I mean, it may not worsen uh, mortality, but it prolongs the time on the ventilator. And time on the ventilator is, is an important uh, endpoint for uh, for patients uh, and in particular for healthcare systems. So it, it complicates the care of the patient uh, as long as and he or she is on a ventilator. So I'll, I'll uh, order negative fluid balances as long as, uh, where, as soon as the patient is um, is stabilized, um, so that would mean lack of signs of uh, severe hyperperfusion. And again, my markers would be cold feet, mottling, lactate above four. But they may still run no adrenaline. Many patients who still run no adrenaline actually improve their circulation once you take fluid off them. So running no adrenaline is no problem. So I'll order. Uh, 1.5 liters negative fluid balance every day for um, for these patients until the patient is sort of balanced based on clinical findings and on weight and cumulative uh, fluid balance on the charged. Um, knowing that, that that these markers are are a bit uh, less precise, so if I'm in doubt, I'll take one 1.5 liters more off um, to to try to to um, to as soon as possible get to a zero balance. Right. Do you give uh, 20% albumin for those with low albumin 
levels, no, no. indole. No, they have low albumin because it, it, it has left the circulation. If you give these patients albumin, this albumin you give will leave the circulation. So nothing's gained. Right, got it. Great, thank you, Dr. Pernod. That, that's a very comprehensive overview from the start uh, to the end. Is there anything else you would like to share with the audience about fluid therapy? No, I, I think it's still, and, and, and I guess that's that's why we are having this chat today. I, I, I think it's still fascinating and still quite challenging, uh, maybe one of the most challenging uh, medical tasks that that we are uh, that we'll see at, at least see in a in a reasonable volume uh, in the emergency department in the ICU. Um, and, and therefore it's important that that we that we have sessions like this that we continue to to do uh, research uh, in this area and that, that we sort of leave the dogma and let our decisions guide by uh, the best available uh, evidence and and in in my opinion that originates in uh, in clinical trials physiological driven hypotheses are fine but but at the end they should be tested in a randomized clinical trial. That's that's the only way that we will gain the final knowledge um, about how to handle patients. And, and I, I think uh, the dynamic markers of fluid responsiveness is a good example of that. It's, it's a good physiological hypothesis, um, adding potential important information to a very complex clinical uh, question but it has not been assessed in a large trial and therefore I don't use it until someone shows in a large trial that this provide benefits to patients and healthcare system because it's more costly, more resource demanding, takes a lot of training to use it, uh, at least to ensure that, that it's delivered 24 seven. Um, and until someone shows me that, that this has value, I will not use it. Thank you for a very wise words and a shout out for evidence-based medicine. And with that, um, once again, this has been Dr. Anders Perner, uh, who has been talking to us about fluid therapy and sepsis. Uh, this has been the AVF podcast. Uh, you can find it on YouTube, Spotify, and please feel free to share it with your friends and subscribe and like. And we look forward to seeing you again in the next podcast. Thank you. Thank you.